Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Valerie Irvin, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Victoria. Valerie, welcome. Tell Thank me you. Something. Yeah, tell me something good. Ah, something good. Uh, in the world of learning, I would actually say Although there's so much stress and panic over what do we do, how do we teach online, um, I do think there is a positive about this. And the positive is we may actually not return to the modality sort of bias of face-to-face only that um, we had before. I've done a lot of advocating over the years for learners who you know, did not fit that mold. And mm-hmm. I think and I hope that because we're being pushed out into exploring all these new ways of connecting and supporting learners in different modes, I, I actually think that that could be a good thing for learners who, you know, are remote and rural, don't have the same kind of access with the university in their background to learners with um, various disabilities or other health needs, um, you know, might actually have a more flexible system when things get a little bit back closer to the normal that we had before. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this particular disruption in the context of the catastrophe that it is, what avenues it may open up. And before we actually dive into your thoughts around multi-access, because I really want to open up that conversation, uh, could you describe a little bit about what are the various roles that you get to play in your work at the University of Victoria? Oh, gosh. Um, So I'm grad advisor and undergrad advisor for the area of educational technology. Um, I'm a supervisor for various grad students, uh, MED, MA, PhD. Um, I teach a core course in our teacher ed program, which is EDCI 336, uh, which is uh, technology and innovation in education. Um, And I'm recently now... um, Oh, actually, also co-director of the Technology Integration and Evaluation Research Lab, which um, I uh, applied for so many grants many moons ago and had yeah. about 1.4 million, I think, to date um, to you know help set up that space and some of the technology. Although the fun part is now I have to get the renewal <laughs> funding oh, as yeah. technology ages, but yeah, uh, yeah. no pressure. And um, more recently, uh, president of the new OTESA uh, organization, That's which right. is uh, an a open and technology in education, society, and scholarship association. So looking to try and bring together folks interested in technology in face-to-face spaces, to folks interested in online education, to open education, and to scholarship across you know, digital and, uh, and open spaces as well but not even wanting to be restrictive to that. The society stands for bringing in um, folks from, you know, in various disciplines so we can look at interdisciplinary work. So you might say that in, in the roles, there's a continuum. You, you teach, so then you get to figure out what do we know? What do we need to know? You have a, a lab, so you get to develop, <laughs> produce, create, and potentially research. And then with Otessa, you have a dissemination sharing engine if you will, for folks in this field trying to hopefully do a little better by our students. Exactly. Trying to get the whole circle going. (laughs) Yeah, I may miss some elements. Yeah, yeah. 
So with 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 the um, technology integration and evaluation lab, do you call that the Thai lab? The Thai lab, yeah, for short. Now it's a it's a bit of a mouthful of a name, but yeah. uh, it was funded in part by the Canada Foundation for Innovation um, and the BC Knowledge Development Fund, plus other um, support groups from UVic to different corporations, but. Um, it, it, the, that grant was, it still is very hard science biased. And mm-hmm. so coming in, no one from education usually gets to tap infrastructure funding uh, under right. that umbrella. It's really, especially if you have a medical um, school in your campus, it's really hard to tap. So um, uh, the grant had to be written without trying to mention the word learning or education. <laughs> so <laughs> it's integration and evaluation. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. It worked. It got the money. And, and it actually, honestly, without that lab, I probably would not have been tinkering and, uh, you know, exploring modality so much. And that was like mid-2000s. And so that's when I came up with the multi-access, realizing like, you know what? We can do this. Like, we can let people pick their modes like we got to get past this lock step view of, of, you know, one modality picked for all. Yep. Yep. We're not living in the world of uh, Tolkien. There is no one ring to rule them all and darkness bind them. Right. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard you describe multi-access as supporting learner personalization of modality preference. Yep. Un- unpack that for me a little bit. And actually I would, I mean, preference is, is, I don't know if that's even the right, I, I do use that as preference, but in some cases it's, it's actually need. So need, um, yeah, okay. if someone cannot access, I, we went to back up a little bit and look at our educational institutions and, yep. and look at them as a right, you know, like this is uh, it, for K to 12, it's a right, you know, you have to school act, you must. Yeah. Um, and then for, for post-secondary, our society and our, our, from um, our economy and everything, the well-being of our society depends on higher education. Our GDP goes up with every extra um, year of education that our population has. So um, it's it's critical. That said, it's it's very face-to-face oriented. Um, uh, you cannot graduate and get a credential in a lot of our different degree programs or certificate programs unless you are able to be bum and seat on that campus in that city. And not every university offers the same program. Sometimes the only program, you know, if you want to be a vet, it's University of Saskatchewan, I think, right? So right, right. It, 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 so all these things come into play. Um, but when you actually require that bum and seat in order to get that credential, you're excluding a whole bunch of people. And um, when we look at the the ramps that we have, that's you know legislation and building code for people with uh, lower limb mobility issues to be able to access buildings um, with a with a cement ramp. Um, you know, we 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 are guarded against that. We're defensive against that. It must happen, but that's only for fifty percent of the population in Canada that have disabilities. Right. The other fifty percent, we are actually not doing that much for. Um, and it could be from severe allergies to autoimmune issues to, um, you know, severe anxiety. Uh, you know, someone with agoraphobia still needs to try to, and they may be able to function in a work environment in, in different ways uh, online. But we have to support access to those spaces. And now childcare and elder care and, and COVID has just opened up this whole thing, <laughs> to be oh, honest, yeah. to start realizing, oh, yeah, how do, how do we support learning? Um, you know, if you have to stay at home, well, 
for those people who maybe couldn't afford a babysitter and yet had a small child and was trying to actually get some credential to get a job. Um, and the credential requires a bum and seat. How, you know, it, it, these are the places we're putting people in when we actually um, are, you know, very privileged in the mindset of, you know, face to face. And I know some faculty members, I've, I've not, not in the ed tech area usually, but um, from beyond, I've had conversations where it's like, well, if they're not actually coming, they're not serious, right? Like if they're not bum and seat, then they can't really be that serious. Right. Well, you know, they could be extremely serious, but be facing lots of adversities that that privileged, you know, professor may never have encountered in their lives, right? So, yeah, it's, it's, um, so that's where I am hopeful of, of the shift that when people go back, they may have been forced outside of their comfort zones to actually have done a Zoom call or Blue Jeans call or use some other way of, you know, um, supporting access to other resources or to conversations um, or peer to peer. But um, yeah, I don't know if I hopefully I answered your question. No, that, that helps. And, and particularly, you know, there was an article in the CBC just two days ago that you know, UBC, Simon Fraser, University of Victoria have all announced that this fall will be moving to mostly online. Yeah. And, and we're trying to really decide what that means. You know, for those of us in education who've been living through COVID, the, the ending of the spring term was really a matter of how do we help our learners end this term as well as can be given this context? Then we were able to make a little bit of shift and be a little bit more thoughtful and mindful of what we were doing in terms of summer courses. Now we have about 80 days, you know, around the world in 80 days to shift in many ways, or I would say to use your language, open up the access where if we can design with multi-access in mind, then we can attend to various needs. Whereas if you design with one mode in mind, it's hard to take that mode and put it into another modality. So talk to me about about the the modalities of multi-access. How how does that show up for you? So, I mean, traditionally we've had at the root the face-to-face classroom on a campus, right? So that would be your your face-to-face mode. Um, And there's expanding that out to being able to bring people in synchronously, synchronously meeting at the same time. So that could be bringing them in via audio if they have, you know, video being a challenge in their area with bandwidth, but um, often that refers to bringing people in via video. So it could be in a video conference enabled classroom uh, somehow. And, and that there are other language for that. Uh, So there's Matt Bauer in Australia who's called that blended synchronous learning. Mm -hmm. Um, John Bell at UMichigan's called that, um, uh, I think he called it synchromodal initially, and then he changed it to synchronous hybrid. Um, And, but that, that just talks about bringing in the synchronous blending, right? The synchronous merging of those two modes. Um, Beyond that is um, asynchronous. So, this can be, you know, the interactions that you do in an LMS or blogging, or, or it could be, um, you know, the, the sharing and reading of resources at different times. One could actually, the, the other thing that one has to consider is like synchronous for whom. <laughs> so right. if you start looking at like, maybe do you, I know uh, Athabasca, they, they do a lot of um, 
you know, a, no requirement to actually be at that time when they have a class uh, that you record it and then just watch it later? Um, or could actually there be multiple different times where there is synchronous class time? Um, and does it have to even exist with you present? Um, I'm a big fan of decentralized learning pods. So, and that's taking groups into, let's say, groups of four and having them have their own little synchronous experiences away from, you know, the whole group. I mean, we do this anyway with, you know, group work or things like that, but it's more intentional in an online space to say, like, you have to have these small discourse conversations. And I've um, noticed that being really key when I... I was joining into this one small group conversation once uh, via video and there was a, a doorbell rang or what have you. And so I, I paused my mic and my, um, my uh, video and went and answered the door and it wasn't like a, a formal whole group time. And so when I came back, I stayed outside of the, you know, I kept my, my, oh, yeah. my output off and just listened to the conversation and it was so rich and so awesome. It was engaged and, and I thought, well, this was so much better than when I was here. And <laughs> yeah. so I came in and, and turned on my mic and turned on my video and they saw me present again and everything falls quiet. And you're, you turn into that, okay, now having to facilitate a conversation again, role as instructor. And that that is just, it's, it's a natural thing to happen. No matter what you do to try and facilitate rich whole group conversation, um, it, you are always going to be working against the fact that you have that, you know, instructor status hat and you're going to be deferred to. There's that, it's hard to flatten that hierarchy when, you know, you are the one giving grades. And, right, right, and right, right. The teacher, right? And so, um, and that after that, I became, you know, convinced not just to have this like a loose optional kind of or however you do it, but to try to intentionally say you, you need to do this. Um, so, that's that's key so that is um that is synchronous though but um asynchronous is more of that not at the same time stuff but um and then the the extra layer beyond that is open so we have all this movement right now globally for open access research right mm -hmm. to make scholarship open and um in canada the the tri-council the government of canada said that anything funded from our dollars has to be you know, released in an open access format because it's been quite horrible. What we, the practice that we, you know, fell into in the past was 99%, let's say, of all of our research is funded by the provincial or federal governments. And then a, a researcher will take that knowledge, you know, and also probably be on the payroll as a professor or what have you, and take that knowledge and hand it over to a third party publisher and say, you know, you can have it. I've signed over <laughs> your, the rights over to, to you. So they actually put it behind a paywall and charge our universities back exorbitant dollars for access to the databases to the knowledge we create. So we're big on changing that and shifting to open access research. But we need to look at when we are teaching, it's the same thing. Like we, I'm still on the payroll for teaching, just like I would be for research. And I'm still creating, you know, but the resources I'm creating, should they really be locked to? you know, and behind an LMS uh, to right. only those people who pay for it. I think the same premise and there's lots of, you know, uh, movement towards OER and open ed. And uh, I struggle with the term open pedagogy though. Uh, I know it's really trendy and popular, but open pedagogy is taking a, mo a positivity bias onto it. But 
um, where it assumes it's it's collaborative and rich and all this stuff where you can have your ex MOOC with a pop up quiz. You know that is open and that's a type of pedagogy. Like the the, the term doesn't necessarily carry growth, but um, but that's that's the other angle where trying to encourage people as much as they can to consider um, access, not just within the modality, but um, but within access in terms of open and closed. So what what do you what are your thoughts about sort of a continuum of what we might consider to be open? You know, in industry you might call that a freemium model where you're giving almost everything away or make everything open, but you may be paying for more maybe discrete feedback or other oh, things. Yeah. Yeah, what do you, yeah. You have to have private spaces um yeah. when you're dealing with people um and so that is that's parts that comes with digital consent um yep so does someone want to blog as a student publicly right with their name or with their pseudonym or privately only with their class or privately only with the instructor or uh, you know i even respect the people who are like i don't want to be online at all (laughs) and we, we find other ways um so i i do i really am guarded of individual preferences with regards to their privacy, just like I am really guarded of their preferences with regards to modality. Um, and and I don't think people need to justify why they want a modality because it could be a want, but it also could be a, a, a human rights need. And it's, it's that asking them over and over again or judging, you know, um, and especially in this climate where we're so aware of mental health and people being able to self-regulate. And part of that self-regulation could be, I need to cut out 45 minutes of commute there and back. I need that hour and a half back in my life to hold it together and pull all this off. Don't judge me. I want to be online. You know, I am serious. I'm just, you know, so we, and that's one thing we found with one of our interviews was the learner said, um, well, their modality preference varied depending on the drive. <laughs> so they'll say first, you know, face-to-face would be their first choice in a rank of, you know, five different types of modality. But then once, you know, you throw in a 45 minute commute, they're like, mm, that's my limit. I think, I think 45 minutes and they brought that number up um, would be where I, I just, I can't just, it's not worth it anymore. I'd, I'd rather use that time to spend learning or focusing or connecting around the course as opposed to sitting in a car right, or on right a bus right. or what have you. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, this idea that this disruption that we're living through can potentially open up and help us flip the script on how we look at learner choice. So I play with the phrase, we need college ready students. And I like to say, no, we need student ready colleges we, yes. can't, we can't create a cul-de-sac, inspect our students to conform to that cul-de-sac. Instead, how do we best understand what do our students and learners need, and can we design accordingly? And it seems to me that multi-access gives us the parameters to do that in a way that's both, I would say, innovative and effective. Yeah. And, and we, we actually can please both sides. Like, um, yeah. we, we did find that learners do have, you know, their, their first choices and they can be very different. So we, we have like a large chunk saying they prefer face-to-face, but we also had a, a decent chunk saying that they would prefer online. So, I mean, how do we, how do we offer a course from the institution's sort of perspective? Are we going to pick, I guess, the dominant, right? But then what happens to that other group? And, and that's even people who even could 
those are people who could make it into campus who've completed that that right, right. you know response we're not even getting the input of the people who couldn't even make it to our universities because they're like i, I can't i you know i give up and and their alternative to face-to-face brick-and-mortar campus is an online university and i don't know if, it, if you've taken a look at their tuition and it's three times the rate of of brick-and-mortar campuses typical typically so we're taking people who are already you know, facing challenges in access, whether it's disability or single parenthood or whatever. Um, and we're actually expecting them to charge three times more for flexibility. Uh, so in, in, in offering it, we actually can please both groups. Um, I mean, one approach an institution can do is say, well, we're going to offer a section that's online and a section that's face-to-face. Uh, well, then you're putting out two instructor salaries, right? right and right. do you have enough to run both? You know, that may happen, may not. Um, the other uh, approach is to offer it with them both in one section. Um, and then there's some tweaks for, for our registration systems, like the off-campus learners shouldn't be paying for like the gym membership or what have you. So, but we, we simply created two sections and cross-listed it and made it one. Um, but then a benefit of that is you fill up your class. Like we had 300 people trying to apply for 25 spots the first time we opened up our MED cohort. And I was like, whoa, right, right. we had no up. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a benefit for the institution there. And then uh, our course evaluations have been extremely strong. Um, like the last summer, uh, we had like a 4.9 average 5.0 median, I guess it was for 26 teachers, K-12 teachers, you know, who, who probably have pretty good opinions on what makes good teaching and learning. Um, and then the learners who had strong modality preferences seemed to be okay being in a multi-access environment because they still got their modality and they actually felt okay being in that kind of space because they know that someone else has needs they got to know those people with those other needs and they got their needs met too right and so it wasn't uh, I lost my my face-to-face preference because now I'm in a multi-access classroom right it was I still got my face-to-face like their experience is still closer to what they they would have with like no technology in the room if that was the case but then again, how many classes are zero technology in the room anyway these days? So, And I imagine for those students who are within that 45-minute radius that you talked about, their choice could be transmodal. I'm working from my home coffee shop today and coming in via technology. Ooh. Ooh. Or uh, I'm c- coming into campus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do want to put, you know, caution, caution on those kinds okay. of things. Oh, yeah, thank you. Because, um, I mean, yes, you can come in from a coffee shop, um, but there's, if they are wanting to have a, a, a reliable experience and also to, you know, ensure that it's good for everyone as well, it, it, there's a, there's etiquette that comes in. So if you're there in are a some loud, there are some constraints then. Yeah, coffee yeah. shop, uh, you're dependent on their Wi-Fi. And so and, and if you're, if it's patchy and you're trying to throw video through it, you could be that learner going, and you can't understand what's going on. It's frustrating right, right. for the class. But then the other thing is when you do turn your mic on, you'd have this loud ambient sound. Like we had um, in our first go before we thought about um, sort of that etiquette piece, um, we had one 
my colleague uh, in the Thai lab had one learner coming in from the side of a swimming pool <laughs> while watching their kid in a swimming lesson. And you know how noisy that is in there? Oh, and the echo. Yeah, no, I many just, swimming lessons. Yeah. <laughs> brutal. And then that after that, it was real quick. You will never do that again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's one of the things that um, yes, they can come in from other places, but they need to make sure that they test those places that they know, you know, that they have a, a an environment that's conducive to learning um, in terms of focus and sound and quality of bandwidth. And because you mentioned swimming pool, let's let's dive in a little bit. Um, could you talk about the design of, let's say, a particular learning activity. Maybe it's a um, you're trying to teach problem-solving skills, and typically you might have students around a table building a tower out of marshmallows and popsicle sticks. I don't know if you do things like that or not, but how would you think about the design of that type of activity so that it can attend to the needs across the modalities? Right. So, um, number one, I don't recommend and I, I you could I mean people certainly can go for it but yeah. I um, and, and actually I know in that that 2013 paper it actually was using all instructional hours all the time um, but I kind of recommend not using you know your if you have three hours a week for your class for your instructional hours not necessarily using all three hours um, I like doing a real mix-up of you know one to one and a half max you know whole group synchronous um, right. so I like doing the one hour whole group, one hour for the decentralized synchronous pods that they can do, you know, another day of the week. I mean, you could do it within your class time and, and break them into groups, but I, I just, I think it just, I think there's something to it when they're connecting at a time that works for all of them and, and it's separate too. And they come in with a different, you know, time pressured <laughs> piece to it. Um, and and then the last hour being more for the asynchronous, like blogging, reading each other's blogs, or having a Slack back channel, or hypothesis commenting on shared readings, those kinds of things. Um, but getting back to if you're wanting to have some hands-on thing, if it's actually materials you need, then obviously you'd have to ship it out to the remote learners, right? Um, but we, in the classes I have had, we don't tend to need a manipulative in our hands. Um, so, but definitely there's ways to do that. There's um, and even knowing K to 12, there was like the Alaska's aquarium. And there's so many places that do, um, you know, video conferencing field trips, whether it's like Drumheller in Alberta or the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, I think it is, you know, they'll, they'll actually send you out these kits or what have you. So you, you can always do that if it's a manipulative type of subject that you're teaching um, and then move forward from there. But um, for those types of critical thinking, collaborative, you know, do stuff, I would probably shift those out to the decentralized learning pods, you know, yeah. where they can work through things. Um, and, and some of those pods are naturally emerging. So like we've had a cohort of three, like not, not a cohort, but like a little mini pod of three students in like Vancouver. And another one we have right now, uh, it's a group of three that are in Fort St. James. And those people, they, 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 come to class face-to-face -face, like with each other you know and so they actually have this little mini face-to-face -face pod so those are some of the interesting things that also come together where um the dynamics can change a bit and and um when you're actually looking at if you are going to be having enrollments 
to a program and you're looking at probably more numbers than you had before, it changes your mindset around thinking of who do you accept and what's the criteria for acceptance. So if you have 300 applying for 25 spots, right. is it GPA anymore? No, it's not because they're all high GPA. Like it's a whole bunch. So, it's, it, so it can't be like that. And so what the beautiful part of that is um, you can start looking at diversity and geography and, you know, uh, and aspects for learning potting. Right. So if you had three people apply from uh, one geographic area that's rural, do you accept two? Do you, or if there's one or two in one area to accept one and leave the other one. Like, so the, the instructional um, design starts coming in to how do you choose and select and create a rich cohort? And, it, and it's interesting. It, we don't really have policies to guide us so much on that. A lot of those are simply, you know, GPA letters of references and those kinds of things. But we do know at the university level, we do want to address you know, inclusion, diversity, these, these aspects. And I think it actually is more likely that we can do so in a multi-access environment. Yeah. Has the, with, with multi-access and thinking about scale, if you talk about 25 slots and there's good reasons why there's 25, does, does multi-access afford the possibility? Well, could we take that to 30 to 50? And at what point does, does the, does the, the learning not, not be as rich as, as one would like, I guess. Yeah. Slip into MOOC territory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's, it, that just depends on what you're trying to get out of your, yep. your class. Yep. Right. I mean, do you want to have a large lecture class, for example? Um, and you could easily do that. And I think make a much richer, large lecture class than you would in this, you know, big hall on a campus where everyone's, crams in and then they all split as fast as possible after um, you're not necessarily able to say, Hey, we're going to take this whole wing at this time for a whole bunch of breakout groups. That's impossible, right? It's not happening. And anything in the fourth row and beyond is a distance is remote, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) so I think if you're going to actually, you know, go to these large class sizes, I, I actually think it would be um, much better to actually to allow people to pick their modality and to allow these decentralized learning pods to be a piece of it. And I've actually been contacted by a few different universities in the U S about wanting to explore multi-access learning because they had small campuses and they were like, we don't, you know, we want to accept more students, but we've, you know, hit our, physical yeah. cap of space and buildings and rooms. So, um, and that is one way for them to expand their space, right? While still uh, acknowledging and respecting their on-campus learners who want that destination experience, but, you know, to bring in more learners and to expand. So I want to I step back just a second um, as we're talking about multi-access, framing it, we've talked about modalities, We've got into a little bit of pedagogy and then, then there's assessment, right? Mm-hmm. So is there anything more that you want to fill in that pedagogy bucket? And then I'm going to ask some questions about your perspective around assessment within multi-access. So, yeah, there's, there's different things that come into play. And again, one of my pet peeves in reading literature that goes around is that they, they kind of screw things up. <laughs> so <laughs> pedagogy is one thing, right? And it can be didactic. It can be, you know, very lecture oriented sort of thing. And it can be really, you know, rich and uh, engaging and dynamic. So, but pedagogy is just a word to say, you know, that 
and can encompass all of that. Right. Modality is your your online, your face to face, your blended asynchronous, synchronous, all this kind. That's your modality. And actually, the open piece I don't really see as falling into modality. That's an access piece. But we often right. use the word access to refer to modality, right? Like, how do you access the course? Oh, I can do it online. But I, I see as access being more to describe the the open, closed, you know, um, <laughs> bit of it. So um, I think there's a lot of affordance for shaking things up in terms of pedagogy. And, and so um, you don't have to, you can still run a large lecture in a multi-axis way and, you know, but so multi-axis doesn't necessarily have to, you know, bring in some of these more, um, you know, in my opinion, sort of rich approaches, but I think it works really beautifully when you, when you do. Um, and so assessment I've talked about, um, uh, I have a background in, uh, in having taken the test theory and statistics in my uh, graduate studies way back and learning from one of the sort of leaders in the area that teacher made assessments has a reliability of 0.4 on a scale of zero to one. And, you know, that was pre kids and all this, like my mindset was just, oh yeah, okay. So therefore instructors, teachers suck at creating assessments and, you know, and it should be thrown out. It was garbage. That's what, that's what we were learning. And the messaging was more like, therefore we need measurement experts, right? Therefore we need uh, exams, sure. right? But then, but when you're in that milieu of stats measurement people, then that's, yeah, you take that that's, stat and you nod you go. and you go, yeah. Um, but as I reflected on it over time and seeing my kids go through schools and seeing how assessments and grades, you know, stressed them out or worried them and how it, how it related to the learning and what honestly could have meant if it was 0.4 reliability. So if we know that anything that we make is, is really subject to appeal, it's, it, it means it has so much error in it. Um, then why don't we like embrace shaking it up? So I like using assessment interviews and I do this even with my blended on campus courses with undergrads um, and I love doing it with marking papers with grad students is bring them in live whether it's bum and sleep beside me or if they choose to be on video um, take that you know 10 minutes or whatever, however much time you would have allotted for marking in isolation and I'd be really surprised if anyone takes less than 10 minutes to mark anything they've assigned <laughs> but right. take that time and schedule it with that learner and get it done in that moment with them, it's, it's connecting, it's rich. It's, it's really makes, makes it less isolating as a teacher and more rewarding. And also it's better for the learner. And sometimes you realize in your marking that you, oops, oh, is that what you meant? Oh, I get it now. And you actually could get a better idea of what the learner was trying to do and mentor them in a better way. So in, in those interviews um, for those, for faculty who have not done that, yeah. Is it is there a, a set of protocols that you draw from? Is it just taking what you would do in a test that you've written? How, how, or, I mean, it's it, I bet it, it depends. It depends. Yeah. It depends, but I can share but, my experience. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I, I asked them to, um, you know, do reflect uh, reflective practices just added as a competency for teacher ed programs. Like it's right. be, it's becoming quite you know um, highly regarded and re and and recommended that people participate in reflective practice to support their learning. So what better process of reflective practice than a blogging, right? Documenting your learning and, and not only for, um, uh, you know, to, to show your learning for your teacher, but using a blog for 
storing everything. Like if, if what you, all the resources you're getting thrown at you in a degree program, it's, if it's locked behind an LMS and then you get kicked out at the end, then it's gone. If they can curate as much as they can and knowing copyrighted what they can upload on their blog and what they can't, but um, curating as much as a, of it as they can on their own blog is really important. But then to reflect on it and then the decentralized learning pods of having that oral discourse is another way of reflecting on, you know, whatever the, the experience was, whether it's a reading or activity. Um, and so when at the end of the term, they have a series of blogs it's impossible to mark all the blogs. If you're encouraging learners to get blogging, you don't necessarily want to be too prescriptive and some might blog a lot. <laughs> right, and right. so it, it, for marking one blog post of, I don't know, let's say 500 words for 25 learners, it can take eight hours. So still encouraging the process, still encouraging that they connect with their peers and read each other's blogs, but they have to identify one that I would mark. Right. Uh. So pick one and, and I would review that one in detail. And when we do meet for our 10 minute piece, it's uh, going over looking at um, what they've categorized as their different outcomes that were expected. And so I can see, you know, bird's eye view, here's their portfolio. They've done all this and I can click on different posts and look at it and ask them to take me on a tour of their learning over the term. And so they can show me all of this. And sometimes I'm like, oh, and we stop and talk about something and we move on. But I usually have, there's like four questions I usually ask them to go through. And I've gotten it nice to a nice point where it doesn't feel rushed and 10 minutes, you know, is fine. I do, you know, book them not necessarily back to back. So there's a five minute overage oh, if God. needed, but often it's, it's, it's fine. And it's, it feels good. And then you're kind of like, that's it. My assessment was oral. And my mm -hmm. course, I made pass fail or complete and complete. But right. even when I haven't had complete and complete, I ask them to self-assess what do they deserve, right? And then they often underestimate themselves. I explain to them. And then you can actually catch your own bias. There was one person who did not dress in suit and tie kind of thing. And one of the colleagues, you know, did. And I, uh, that one individual self-assessed higher than what I had. Um, and... Made, I said, I'll go back and reflect on it. And I did. And I compared their work to the others in that grade range that I had. And I realized actually it is pretty similar. And so it made me start thinking, is it because he dressed gruff? Was it like, was it my uh, subconscious, you know, coming in unconscious bias? Um, and so, but that allowed for that interaction for him to share that for me to go back. And I came back and said, yeah, you, you've got that grade. I think you're right. Yeah. And that's that, nice, right? <laughs> that is, that, no, it's nice. And it seems to me, um, I was I spent many moons in recording studios as an audio engineer, and the, the the goal was always to get straight gain without the wire, right? Or how do you close the space between the phenomena and the representation of the phenomena? How do you make understanding between what the student puts on the page and what you would typically do with a red pen and market by being right there with the student? in a live setting, if you will, you're, you're, you're providing that relevant, timely feedback, but in a way that the student can hear and then respond to in the moment. So it seems to me the fidelity possibility goes up in not only your understanding of what they're showing and telling about their learning, but hopefully their owning of that learning. And it's a gentle delivery, honestly, yeah, because yeah. you know how hurtful it would be to get this like, oh, open your email one day or go into your and you see this mark that, you know, and, and, it, and you get a few cryptic comments with it. 
that. And we wonder why mental health of our learners is not strong. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would rather sort of talk with them and be encouraging and try and, you know, uh, provide ways for them to, you know, get where they need to go. Um, and so, and, and then you can also find out maybe what's behind it. I did not realize that your mom was diagnosed with cancer. Well, you should have come to me sooner. You know, I will give you a one-term extension. You keep working on this. Like sometimes the grades that you're seeing is not the whole story. And so it's getting, it's like, it's like going into a bank teller, you know, where there's that plexiglass kind of thing and, or people at a ticket master and they slide the tickets through the small Mm -hmm. little path, a little scoop underneath. Um, I I kind of feel like we've, we've shifted into this factory model of education and the LMS is like, exacerbates it in my mind uh, the learning management system Um, and it it makes it like there's this plexiglass between us and the more we can try and break that down um, and you know whether it's I I see it's broken down best synchronously and whether that's through a regular telephone call that's fine or if it's through audio via the internet or via um uh, video uh, or bum and seat sitting next to you, although now they'd have to be six feet apart. But um, I think those are the ways, uh, and it gets closer to what graduate studies is. So yeah, yeah, I, I did. I've done a lot of work in uh, the Eastern Cape of South Africa, which is they still have a matric system there. And when the students write their exams, they'll be writing for like the entire month of November, and they they get their scores. It's published in the newspaper. Oh. The newspaper comes, they open up the newspaper and they look for their name, and it's either E exemption into university, pass or fail. And in the township schools where I work, there were 70% failures. So and there was some families that we spent a lot of time and worked with. So I was in one home where, where one of the students got an exemption, and that was elation. And another family who was expecting that, it came back fail. And th- it was crushed. I mean, yeah. he was crushed. The father, the mother, the aunties was crushed. The, 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 the minister in the town was crushed. It was just like this devastation. But like, do but we in, want to do that? Like, I no, think our role should be helping no. people reach their potential. And this is no, a, yeah. another example here, again, back from reflecting on the measurement class days and discussions. So I don't, I grew up in Vancouver. So there's West side Vancouver and East side Vancouver. And back then it was a lot different. Like it was East side was very much um, your low socioeconomic status. West side was your high socioeconomic status and West side had UBC in it. So (laughs) you're like the community's right there too. Um, But the idea of, of, of assessment and imagining the K to 12 sphere the learners uh, were getting similar marks, whether they're in West Side or East Side. So, because teachers would, you know, no one's going to give a whole bunch of Ds to somebody, right? And so, uh, they had similar grades from teachers. And then again, this was the argument of why we need standardized exams, because there's no difference. And yet, you know, we had standardized exams. And if you give that high reliability 0.9 and above to all of them, you'll see that the West Side kids, right? did so much better. And then the East side kids did so much worse on these standardized exams and therefore is making it more fair for who gets into university. Uh, But what are we assessing there? Are we actually assessing 
how smart these kids are, you know, are we assessing their, you know, hardworkingness or are we assessing their socioeconomic status who had, you know, tutors at home or two professional parents who were like able to, you know, afford that West side home. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like what? Oh, yeah. and, and so for wanting to look at it from that angle, even if you can say, well, standardized exams have uh, more reliability, you have to kind of look at that, you know, tool and, and question, do we really want to do a society like this? Or do you want to try and make it so everyone can have a more equal chance and, ultimately, and change their tra- tra- yeah. trajectory, right? Who, whose interests are we ultimately serving? So I, I'd like to walk back a little bit. One of the fun parts of this podcast is I get to ask guests, do you have, could you talk about an influential teacher that you may have had either inside or outside of the classroom, but someone you want to give some props to? Gosh, um, I would, I thought about this um, and I would actually say like, I can't pick one. Yeah, I know. It's hard. (laughs) (laughs) One was my mother who was a, a badass immigrant from Hungary during the 1956 uprisings. And she had been occupied, you know, by at home by the Nazis and the Russians and all that. So, and she was an advocate for children with learning disabilities because my brother um, uh, had that in epilepsy. So she was a fighter and advocate and not accepting the status quo. So she got me to not believe in the status quo, you know, to question everything. And, and so I, I would actually say she was really influential. I would also argue that, um, uh, Mr. Georges was a teacher of mine in law 12 and drama and all that in high school. Amazing. But he, he brought in really controversial, like he would take controversial subjects and bring in the extreme cases of each of those into our classrooms. Right. And so it, he, he had a few, I think, what do you call it? Like reprimands <laughs> for yeah. some of the stuff that he did, over, but it was amazing. Um, out of the box thinker. Um, and then probably a little bit of isolation and failure, like not people, but things. Um, it is a bit isolating here on Vancouver Island. Right. So uh, being, and also I was a faculty member N of one in my area for most of my career. So, oh, wow. yeah, which is, you know, being in a brick and mortar thing, thinking in isolation actually has been good in a way. Um, allows me to think a little crazy <laughs> and, um, and then failure trying and, and failing at things and trying and failing at things. I think that is, it's yeah. Most influential mm-hmm. teacher in my life and being okay with failure. So that's why right. we try and take risks with new things and change how we teach. Yep. 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 Um, it's summertime, so usually in summertime, I get to break out a little bit more of a, a fun reading list, but are you reading anyone for fun or for school? Who are you reading right now? My kids write novels, and my oh, eldest yeah. is especially, she's a, a binge writer, so uh, I'm reading uh, one of her novels right now, so it's <laughs> pre-published. I can't give you the title out there to okay. look up, oh. but really, I love, I love uh, encouraging that kind of, you know, creativity yeah. at home, and 
and uh, just, yeah, she amazes me all the time on, on what she's able to pull off. Is she diving into fantasy, science fiction, ethnographic? It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, well, I think she's ditched that. She loves the medieval kind of history time. So she does yeah. that, but with a alternate universe kind of take. And then another one that she had was, uh, honestly, I think it would make an incredible TV series. Was It was taking on the Banshee kind of aspect oh, yeah. uh, culture, but honing completely in on it. And that was, yeah, amazing. So uh, maybe she'll get them published uh, at some point. Cool. That'd be nice. Yeah. What are you reading for fun? Um, well, I'm actually reading a book called Dear Committee Members by... Julie Schumacher. And it it's the best way I can put it, it's a hoot. It's based in a small liberal arts college in an English department. And she's writing as if she was a faculty member in an English department that's no longer being supported. And this and the person is really um has some issues with an inflated ego. But the entire book is recommendation letters that this person writes on behalf of students, but he uses these recommendation letters to rant against the system. And, 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 and it's an insider look at some of the dynamics and politics within, a, within an academic unit. But it's uh, so sad it's true sometimes, but I, it's one of those, you know, spurt soda out of your nose while you're reading it books. Gosh, I think, yeah, many of us could probably write several chapters. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's time to spin the Yara wheel. Val, you ready to give it a spin? Sure. Okay, here we go. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? Okay, it landed on what is your greatest extravagance? <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought it was fear. Uh, my, no, greatest no. Ex- my greatest extravagance, um, yeah. I would probably say, are my kids. <laughs> yep. It, it's, uh, yes, I spend on them and encourage them to, you know, have great experiences whenever possible. So those Disney World trips or the, you know, I want to learn how to paint and get all the gear together. So that's probably what I would um, count as my extravagance. That and and my, my office setup I'm starting to okay. do for my home office is pretty good. <laughs> Um, I, I have uh, some 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 correlation with with the kids. One of the things that Angelica and I have committed to is she takes students and works with students in Brazil every year for the past ten years. And I've done a lot of work in South Africa, so there's a lot of uh, academic travel that we get to do. So on the so if it's her trip, what we do with the families, you know, we don't have the big house or the big car or the cottage, but any extra funds go into a travel fund. So when one of us gets a trip. The other one goes along with the trip and bring brings our kids with us. And yep. so she'll be teaching in Brazil. Then I'll be watching the kids. And then in South Africa, for instance, my son now is, he's 21. But my first trip there, he was five. And I was working with principals in township schools. And my friend Lunga, who, who's the principal of Walmer High, Walmer High School, his son, Ayabong and Case have known each other. So when Case goes there, he goes to school with Ayabong. 
And my daughter, Nico, when she goes to school, my other friends are teachers and their daughter, she'll go to school with them to the point where my son finally figured out what we're supposed to have summer vacation. And we spend our summers in South Africa. I'm going to school year round. This is a ripoff. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. But uh, wow. yeah, I would I would probably put that as an ex- our extravagance as well. But some of these extravagances are the are the well being makers that I think are really important. <laughs> yeah, I think you're only as happy as your unhappiest kid. So spending on them or making them set up is is makes me happy. I think we got a t-shirt quote out of today's lesson on that one. Valerie, as we wind up, are there any uh, current projects, talks, research or, or articles, books that you're working on that you would like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, we have some ethics. So many. Yeah. One, one of them I can't talk about yet. There's an NDA, but um, no. uh, we're internally just for my own work uh we're we're looking at uh connecting research studying our pre-service teacher ed learners but also looking at a covid um pivot study as well to try to collect some i i've seen some of the early research that's come out about that and and i i kind of think it's um lacking what's happening on the human side behind Mm. what's going on you know like how many people, you know, switch to online or how many, like, or, you know, like, I, I don't really think that's capturing the phenomenon. So um, we, we want to try to dig a little bit in on that. Um, and so that's, that's going to be interesting. And, and also looking at a few other um, pieces of trying to find a little bit more about learner characteristics and um what what that tells us or about people in terms of their preferences in terms of different modalities and 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 access open or closed that's funny a little bit more about the why you know people are are who they are and the choices that they make now not to put you on the spot no i guess i do mean to put you on the spot so (laughs) you you talked about your role with otessa now I, I'm I'm still considered I still am considering myself new to the Lower Mainland, um, and and Canada. Although I'm from I've been in Seattle for 20 years, so I'm not that far away. But I was looking forward to a Tessa this year to get more involved in a community of practitioners in the space, mm. and you know that had to be postponed or canceled. Are you thinking about multi-access in terms of conferences? Has that got into your thinking yet? <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, Otessa, I mean, it exists on its own. Um, That said, it has been approved as a member association of Congress or of the Federation for Social Social Sciences and Humanities. Um, And that that conference is very much a brick and mortar, uh, traditional academic, but that's also part of why we chose, you know, to build within that because if we're wanting to change academia, that is the academic conference of the country here. Um, and with like, I think they said 7,000 attendees. So if we're wanting to start to introduce changes in pedagogy and or in access, you know, we, we can create open sessions and try to, you know, can yeah. bring people into the fold. Um, and while at the same time, it is the feather in your cap kind of thing where, I, you know, for tenure and promotion reviews or trying to get jobs, it, having that on your CV is, is, um, it counts. 
Yeah. They recognize because, you know, often there's only one ed tech faculty member per institution, which is crazy. And hopefully we can change that. The other is, um, uh, you know, the, if there's five people in a hiring committee and there's one person in the area, that means there's four who aren't. They'll recognize Congress on a CV, right? Uh, right and so, right, right, right. Um, and we also can make it not just about, you know, research only, but value that practice is a huge role and practice is part of our scholarship. So, yep. um, so that's key. That said, um, we were going to allow some merging modes in this first face-to-face instance, but um, we didn't want to go full out in the Frisco, not knowing, you know, how it was like to run a conference within there or even what the bandwidth was like or what their tech support was like or any of that. Um, and we were exploring having a fall online only conference as well. Um, but with everything that just blew up, we knew, we heard quickly that our community was buried under supporting the pivot, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yep, and yep, so yep. it's like, you know, who has time? So we heard a mix of views of some people saying, you know, we got to just cancel this. Like, we, there, no one has time for this kind of thing. And others saying, we need this now more than ever. We're isolated. We should connect. So, but again, it's it's hearing all of these different opinions that were extremely different and and kind of like the philosophy that I have with multi-access, we kind of thought, well, why are we going to pick one thing and dictate it for all? Um, so let's just allow it to be choice-based. And we we have... We've, we're not participating in Congress. We'll do it as our own standalone event because Congress canceled the entire thing. Um, and so we're going to have it as a conference for the entire month of June. Ah, and people can, we just sent yeah. out the survey response, like surveys to them to ask them to tell us what their intentions are. Do they want to defer to next year? Do they want to withdraw? Do they want to proceed with a synchronous presentation sometime in June? Do they want to um, proceed with only an asynchronous presentation where it's a blog post, they could post something recorded, or even if it is text-based or various media, whatever, do they want to, you know, present asynchronously or both? Um, And if they want to proceed with the proceeding, if they had one accepted, and for um, a number of people, they also got an invitation to our new journal, which we just launched. So, so we're, it's basically very fluid. And again, um, even the dates that we've provided, they're targets. So we want to operate with compassion and flexibility. And if people are like, I can't make that timeline, well, then just reach out. We will support your timeline. Um, and this way it can, uh, it can allow people to, yeah, choose what's best for them. Because right now, we don't know what's going on in oh, people's yeah. homes and what they're dealing with. And it's, it's, it, we have to have flexibility. So um, but yes, definitely in the future, we want to grow something that isn't so um, like exclusive to a certain date and time and presence, but we want to provide a, a variety in the future, whether it's an online only, a face-to-face only, a multi-access type, like we can, we can look at all of it, but the more we can fit in merging, the better, because then we can be more inclusive. Yep. Yep. What's, what's the name of the journal? Tessa. <laughs> Otessa. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So if you go to otessa.journals.uvic.ca, you'll now see a landing page for both the conference and the journal. Um, but we are working on changing the URL so it doesn't have UVic in it, but we're just, you know, setting up and it's going fast out. So good. Yeah. So in the show notes of this podcast, I, I can put a link to the article that you've written on multi-access. Sure. I can put a link to the Hit Lab and I can put a link to the Otessa. Is there any anything else? 
Uh, yeah, Tessa. Your child, Tessa child's Journal. novel? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'll fire yeah. off uh, some links to you and see if yeah. I... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, well, Valerie, th- th- thank thank you so much for this time. I know we're all we're all juggling many things, and and the weight of the time is pretty heavy. But oh. I, I I really appreciate the passion and flexibility that you bring to this conversation and to your work. So so thank you thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to have me here today. So yeah. Um, and I, I look forward if anyone wants to reach out and connect with me later with any questions, I'm I'm here. Okay. And do you, how would you like for me to put that in? I could put that contact in the show notes. Um, yep. I can put, you know, email, Twitter, you know, okay. my number, whatever at all. Phone works. number, credit card yep. number. Get a birth. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Okay. Well, thanks again. Um, be well and, 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 and much, uh, I guess, good goodness to your family. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank Same you. with you. Great. Again, you've been listening to Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm-hmm.